All right, good morning once again. Glad to have you with me today on Sunday at the Digital Cathedral. And I hope you're enjoying our new, uh, our new YouTube premiere. Please feel free to make comments and greet one another. We, you know, we made a little bit of upgrade on our, uh, on our system here. Our top-notch producer, Caden Red Pearl, was able to install this and get it working correctly and properly. And so we're, you know, we're just trying to make it a little bit more interactive like we do on Wednesday night. So, you know, don't hog the conversation, but feel free to interact and greet one another. And, and this is a good way sometimes to, to uh, meet people that live in your area of a state or uh, that you can get together with if you're somewhat in the vicinity. I'm looking for more and more people to, to pool up and have uh, Bible studies and fellowship groups around the world. Because the numbers of people that are coming into this message is phenomenal. It really is. I'm hearing from people everywhere now. Where just a few years ago it was very sparsely sprinkled, but now we're, our numbers are increasing for sure, just as they are at the Digital Cathedral. All right, I want to start this morning over in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. I got a little bit of a burden this morning, and I want to unload my heart before we finish up on this third chapter of Galatians. So just bear with me this morning. I feel like there's something that we, there's some things we need to talk about to get a right perspective on uh, Paul's writings, some lens that we need to see through as we work our way through these books. So let me just for a little bit of background start over in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. If you've got a, a word and faith background, I'm sure this verse of scripture is familiar to you. It's a powerful verse of scripture. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, the wisest man supposedly that ever lived said this. He said that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now just think about that. Let that settle into your spirit this morning. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat the fruit of it. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. And the tongue will produce a fruit. And you will eat of the fruit, either life or death, that the power of your tongue or the words that you speak produce. Words are extremely important. The words that we speak are important because they build pictures. If I, if I were to say to you, um, oh, let me just say, white convertible Corvette. Now, in your mind, automatically, with those words that I spoke, you got a picture. You didn't get a picture of a school bus. You got a picture of a white sports car with a convertible top. Words create pictures, and pictures create perceptions. And the, the perceptions that you create by the pictures of the words that you speak ultimately create the reality that you live in. So the progression goes like this. The words that we speak are extremely important because they create pictures. Pictures create perceptions. And all of our reality comes out of the way that we perceive things. Science has proven that words have a great effect on our physical bodies. You know, if you speak to your body, it has, a, it has an effect on it. You speak negatively uh, to your body, it has a negative effect. 
if you speak negatively about yourself, if you say, well, you know, all my life I've had problems, I've just been a mess for so many years, I don't think I can ever dig my way out of it, things are, are bad and terrible, and I just don't see any way out, you're, you're creating a picture of the life that you're living. You're eating the fruit of the words that you speak. Now, if you've been speaking that for 15, 20, 30 years, it's not going to turn around overnight. You've got to plant some more different words that create different pictures to create a different perception that will bring a reality that is more likable to what you would like to achieve in life. So it only stands to reason, if words are important, it stands to reason that how we define the words that we speak are, is extremely important. And that's what I want to get at for the first few minutes this morning. This is what's been on my mind this week, are the definitions that we put on words that create pictures, that bring about a perception, that create the reality that we live in. So if we have a faulty perception of a word that we speak, if we have a bad definition, it builds a faulty perception, creating a faulty reality. For example, the word church has been totally redefined by Western religion. The word church, when, we, when I say the word church, you have the picture of a building. You have the picture automatically of, a, of a, maybe a white church with a steeple or a big brick edifice or whatever, maybe the church that you go to. If I say the word church, you automatically think of, of an institution, a building, a place where people gather to worship. That's not what church originally meant. I'm just using this as an example. When Jesus said, I will build my church, the word is ecclesia. It means called out ones. He's speaking about people. In its original definition, church always referred to people. But because we have redefined the word, when we speak the word now as it's been redefined, all of a sudden the picture is different. And because the picture is different, our perception changes and it creates a different reality. Now, I've said all that to say this. There are four words that Paul uses that I want to clarify this morning. I want to define them, and then I'll end up at, at Galatians chapter 3. We will finish the chapter this morning. But I want to define four words that Paul uses in light of the gospel that Paul was commissioned to give directly from Jesus, the gospel that Paul was commissioned to give to the Gentiles. If you'll get a right handle on these four words, it's going to clear up some of the fuzziness that you maybe have in some of your perceptions. So we're going to walk, walk through these four words. And as I walk through them, we're going, to, we're going to draw a contrast between the way religion has perceived them and the way that Paul has defined them. Because Paul and religion are on absolutely different roads. They're going in, in different directions. Paul and religion do not define words the same. There's a fundamental reason for that. Religion always starts from a premise of separation separation from God and what you have to do to close that separation. Whether it's, you know, get saved, get baptized, uh, speak in tongues, whatever your flavor of denomination or particular church is. There, there are ways that you have learned through religion to bridge the gap that they created in your mind that has separated you from God. <clears throat> and the bottom line on what religion does through the separation, they have said in effect that if you do something for God, if you show your loyalty, show your dedication, your commitment, your worship, all those things, if you show that to God, then He will do something for you. 
You show your dedication, your, 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 uh, uh, your commitment, your servanthood, then he may uh, save you, heal you, accept you. It, it's kind of a, you know, it, it's kind of this quid pro quo thing. That's a, that's a, a hot buzzword right now, quid pro quo. And that's the kind of gospel that we have, that we have defined that we live in because of how religion has created this separation. This, that's what I was drilled with for years and years. And I, honestly, I drilled other people with it for 35 years of pastoring before I begin to see that some of the words that we have looked at, we've actually defined in a, in a, in a false sense. And the reason is because religion always starts with separation. Paul never started with separation. Paul, on the other hand, takes you down the road of union and inclusion. Paul starts, Paul starts with the vision of union and inclusion of all men because of the finished work of the cross. Whereas religion, on the other hand, has left you over here in, on the road of separation. With Paul, there is no quid pro quo. Uh, Paul stresses entirely what the Father through the Son and the Spirit has done for you apart from anything that you do. He has done what he has done for everybody, right? So there's no quid pro quo. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a simple direct deposit. The Father through the Son and the Spirit has made a direct deposit into your life of all that Jesus accomplished as us. There's no, there's no pay to play with Paul. He totally, Paul brings us a Jesus that totally picked up the tab. He paid the entire debt. So Paul heads us down this direction toward inclusion and, uh, and union. And the church takes us down the same road, but in the opposite direction of separation. So when we come to some of the words in scripture, we've had them redefined by religion and we have a bad perception of them. So just let me give you an example. Then I'm going to give you the four words. Let me give you an example that a lot of us have already come to grasp and understand. And it's the word repent. Most of us have, uh, have seen that there um, is not an actual religious repentance that we, were that we were taught. Repent is a word that many have seen in, in a new light. Now, religion, and what I was always taught, is that repent meant that you were to undergo this deep sorrow. You know, you were to be extremely <clears throat> sorrowful for your actions. And when we would repent, we'd usually come down to the altar, you know, we'd bawl and squall and tell God how sorry we were. We would ask for his forgiveness. We would beg for mercy. We would try to get him to, to see us in a different light. And that, re the, that repentance was always the first step of forgiveness. And we were taught that if there's no repentance, then there's no forgiveness. That you needed to convince God that you were sorry, that you were uh, wrong, and most of all, that you would never do what you did, that you're asking forgiveness, you'd never do it again. And by doing that, you just set yourself up for failure because you would do it again. And then you'd repent again, tell God how sorry you were. You'd cry, you'd, 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 you'd shed tears. The, the problem with that is that we never knew if we were sorry enough. <laughs> how do you know if you've begged God enough to forgive you? How do you know if you have cried enough to merit God's love and mercy? Well, we did have a way of kind of knowing it. If we, you know, prayed long enough and asked for forgiveness long enough and repented enough, 
we would do what we would call pray through. Anybody know? All of you in the digital cathedral that know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about raise your hand. Come on, raise your hand. Okay, I see hands all over the world raised up. So you understand what I mean when I'm talking about praying through, right? Really praying through is nothing more than an emotional release. We got, at some point along the process, we, we felt alleviated of the burden emotionally, and that made us feel like we had, the religious term was, was pray through. So we, we've learned that repentance, now we've learned that repentance is the Greek word metanoia, M-E-T-A-N-O-I-A. And it doesn't mean all of that stuff that we used to do. It means simply to change your mind. And I'm using this as an example because a lot of us have discovered it. And then I'm going to get into four words that we, that we definitely need to clarify in definition. It means simply a change of mind or to travel in the opposite direction. If I'm going this way, if I'm going west and I repent, then I go east. If I'm going north and I repent, then I go south. You just change direction. So you, 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 you see the truth, you see what God is saying to you, and you simply change your mind and you head toward the light out of darkness. I, I repent a lot. As I see more, I change directions. I'm, you know, repenting is not, just some, is not something you do to beg forgiveness for. Repentance just means a change of mind, a heading in a different direction. So that's Paul's repentance. Paul's repentance is just get the revelation, change your mind, and go in another direction. So you've got a decision to make. You can follow religion's definition of repentance, which is sorrowful, crying, bawling, crying out to God, uh, asking Him to forgive you. <clears throat> That's religious repentance. Paul's repentance is just change your mind. Let, let me give you just two quick scriptures on, on this thing of repentance. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus said this. Matthew chapter 4 and verse... 17. Matthew chapter 4. Hope you always have your Bible uh, on your coffee table and you can grab it and follow some of these scriptures. Matthew chapter 4 verse 17. From that day Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Change your mind. You've been, you've been moving away from the kingdom now. Repent. Change your mind. Head toward the kingdom. He's saying, I'm, I'm bringing you light. I'm bringing you revelation on the kingdom. Now change your mind and head toward the kingdom. Then we find uh, Paul over in Acts chapter 17. If you'll come over a little bit to the right. In Acts chapter 17 and verse, 20, and verse 30, Paul is talking to these, these uh, heathen on Mars Hill. And he's, he's teaching the gospel to them. And he comes down to verse 30, and he said, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, <clears throat> but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And all Paul is saying is that God has brought light to all of us, and so it's time for us to, to change our mind and go in a different direction. <clears throat> now, you should be quick to repent. The more you see, the more you repent. More revelation that comes into your life than the more you repent. <clears throat> this, this sackcloth in ashes and tears kind of repentance is actually an Old Testament concept. But in the New Testament, we just have a change of mind that is inspired by the Holy Spirit and it's, it's you know, has nothing to do with your remorse for your actions. In fact, you never hear this in church, but Romans 2.4 says 
that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not the threats of God that lead us to repentance. All right? Now, that, I think that's kind of the way we had this thing of repentance down. Uh, you know, God threatened us with hell if we didn't repent. That's not, that's not what leads to genuine repentance. What changes our mind is the goodness of God. Okay, now I just use that for a quick example because I think a lot of us have come into the, uh, an understanding of repentance that's different than what we traditionally had. So let me, I want to look at four words. I want to I lay out four words. I want to lay out the words confession, believe, faith, and receive. Confession, believe, faith, and receive. And I want to look at those for just a couple of three minutes. Religion has made those four words, confession, believe, faith, and receive, Religion has made those into actions that we need to generate, that we have to do, that we have to exercise in order to merit the favor of God or to get God to move on our behalf. All right? Four words. Confession, believe, faith, and receive. In, in other words, religion has redefined those words. And in redefining those words, they have create, religion has created a false perception. And that false perception created a reality for us that we lived in all of those years in religion, thinking one thing when really Paul was telling us another thing. See, religion has defined them and brought them into the context of the if-then gospel. You know what I mean by that? If, if we do, then God will do. It's, it's, they've created a transactional gospel that we make a deal with God and God makes an agreement back based on our offer. We have a contract with God. We do a certain thing and God will do a certain thing. We keep our end of the bargain and God will keep his end of the bargain. And religion has taken those four words and cemented them around this idea that we, have a, we enter into a contract with God. So we, we need to do our part, and we do our part with confession, with believing, uh, with faith and receiving, right? So those, we have built an, a perception of those four words into actions, really works. It comes down to a work. And you remember what I've told you a work is? A work is anything that you think that you have to do in order to merit the favor and the goodness of God. So when you look at these four words, I think that you're going to find that we have turned them into a work and Paul never meant them. Meant them to be used in the context of a work that we have to perform. So let's, let's look through the lens of Paul this morning for just a few minutes. And I, I'm not going to, you know, I can't, I don't have time to really explore these in a whole lot of depth, but I think if I just hit some surface things, you're going to... Those at the Digital Cathedral are, are a step ahead of everybody else, and you're going to be able to pick up on it real quick and unwind it even further than what I take you this morning. Let me look first at this word confess. Confession. Religion looks at confession as a time that we come to God and we tell God all of our misdeeds, all our follow-ups, all our sins and where we fail. We, we confess to Him. In the Catholic Church, you make a confession to a priest. In a Protestant church, evangelical church, uh, we confess to God. 
But you, when, when we think of confess, we think of uh, coming to God and confessing those things that we have done that are wrong. And we confess it with the words of our mouth. Now, actually, the word confess in the Greek is the word homologia. H-O-M-O-L-O-G-I-A. H-O-M-O-L-O-G-I-A. Homologia. It means to agree with or to say the same thing. So when we confess through Paul's lens, we're coming into a place where we say what God says about it. We agree with God, what God says. For example, sin. When we confess sin, we say what God says about sin. We come into an agreement with what God has established concerning this whole thing of sin. So we need to know what God says about sin, right? So let's look at Scripture. Colossians chapter 2. Let's look at just a couple of Scriptures here. Colossians chapter 2. Let's see what God says about sin because we want to come into an agreement with what He says about sin. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. Paul said, And you being dead in the trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him having forgiven you all, past tense, having forgiven you all your trespasses. So I pick up right off the bat that what God says about sin is that he's forgiven us all our trespasses, right? So when I, when I come to him about sin, I want to agree with him. I want to agree with him, and I want to say, I want to confess, Father, I, I know that you've already forgiven me all my sin and all my trespasses, Right? Now, over in Hebrews, it throws a little bit more light on it. Come over to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, and let's read verse 12. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12. God speaking says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Watch. And their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. So now I've learned two things. Colossians 2.13, he's forgiven me all of my sin trespasses. And I find out now in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12 that in fact he doesn't even remember them anymore. Now looking, looking back at the way I used to look at this, where I had to confess my sins for him to forgive my sins, and I look at it now through the lens of Paul, I have a question for you. How can I ask him to forgive me for a sin that he doesn't even remember anymore? If he has no remembrance of my sin, he doesn't know what I'm talking about. When I used to come down, you know, I was growing up, we'd come down to the altar and I would, I would cry and tell God how sorry I was. Please forgive me of all my sins. And God says, I don't know, son, what you're talking about. I don't remember your sins anymore. That needs to be my confession. That needs to be what I agree with. And he says the same thing in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 17. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 17. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. I know what you're thinking. Some of you sitting at home thinking, yeah, but what about 1 John 1, 9? Well, let's go over and look at 1 John chapter 1. This is the bread and butter of come down front. Let's, let's confess our sins so that he can forgive our sins. Let's look at that for just a minute. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 says this. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. 
If we confess our sins. Now remember what confess means. It's homologia. It means to say the same thing as, as he says or to agree with him about our sins. And what did we just discover that he said about our sins? They're already forgiven. They're forgotten. They're, they, they are no more in, on the screen of remembrance. So let's just say that. If we confess, if we say what he says about our sins, we know that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we have used that verse to just hammer people. Now, if, if, if you really say what the Father says about sin, then you're going to know that he has already been faithful and just to forgive your sins. And he's already been faithful to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So it's, instead of making confession something, a work or an act that we have to do in order to gain something back from God, which has always been we have to do to get him to forgive through the confession, through saying to him what we've done, we need to come and look at it from his angle, from his, from his perspective, from his side of the coin, and begin, and begin to use the words of our mouth to say, Father, look, I, 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 I messed up on this one, all right? But I know that you don't even remember it. It's already been forgiven. It's, it's not part of who I am. It's not, it's not, it's not me, all right? What you do is not you. Who you be is you. And who you be is forgiven, justified, sanctified, redeemed. That's who you be. See, you think your identity comes from what you do. It doesn't come from what you do. It comes from who you be. In fact, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, if you come over just one more chapter, in chapter, uh, uh, chapter 2 and verse 12, he says this, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you. Past tense. They already are forgiven you. Watch. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Now, let me ask you a question. Why haven't we given 1 John 2.12 as much attention as we did 1 John 1.9? I'll tell you why. Because religion has built the perception of separation. And 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 has been used to try to get us to bridge the separation through the confession of our sin. Where Paul, where Paul teaches us that confession, homologia, is saying the same thing. And if I want to agree with him, then how about if I agree with 1 John chapter 2 verse 12, which tells me that he has already forgiven our sin for his name's sake. Now you can use the same thing about salvation. Two of the verses that are often used most like often in, in, in salvation is Romans chapter 10. Let's read that. Romans chapter 10. And let's look at it just in light of how we are looking at this word uh, homologia, right? Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. That if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now here's, here's what we want to do. We want to say what the Father says about salvation, right? That's what he's saying here. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we want to say what the Father says about us being saved. 
Now here's the testimony of Jesus about our salvation. Here's what, here's what we want to get our words aligned with that agree with what he already says. For example, and I've been on this verse because it has, it has just shocked me why I never saw this for years. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. Jesus said this. This is his, this is his confession. This is what we agree with. This is what we bring our words to align with. Jesus said, Luke chapter 19, 10, I, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. All right. Your confession is a realization of the truth that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. So your, your confession is a, is a realization of the truth of what Jesus said he came to do. Your confession doesn't trigger anything. Your confession does not make it happen. See, we were taught we had to confess it in order to make it so. What we need to do is homologia. We need to agree and align our, our words with what Jesus has already established. And he said he came to seek and to save that which is lost. And evidently he didn't need my help in either one of those. He doesn't need my help in seeking the lost or saving the lost, of which we were numbered at one time before the cross. After the cross, we, we, we're no longer lost, Right? So your confession is a realization of the truth. It's not, not something that we use to spring it into action. So that brings me to word number two, which is part of this Romans 10, 9, and 10, and that's the word believe. All right. Now, believe, and I've given you this definition before, believing is an effortless response to revelation. I can't tell you how hard I used to work at trying to make myself believe things. I would read a verse of scripture and I would, I would, I would work. And this is what religion has done to us. I would work. Sometimes I'd work up a, a sweat. Get myself to believe. Because believing, I thought, was something I had to do on my part in order to make it, make it so or to make it true. Believing is an effortless response to revelation. And I finally came to the realization one day that I can't make myself believe anything. Right? You can't make yourself believe anything. It's the job of convincing you is on him. It's not on you. Believing is an effortless response to revelation. It's his job, not your job, to bring the revelation to you to such a level and such a degree that you respond to it. That's believing. The, the, the spirit of truth was sent to bring us light and revelation that we can respond to. And when he brings the light, he brings the revelation strong enough. You know what? You, 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 believe, you believe even before you realize you're believing. Isn't that what happened to, to Saul that became Paul on the Damascus Road? When Jesus appeared to him, when the revelation was strong enough, Paul dropped all of his religious facade, veneer, years of training, persecution against the church, and he believed and he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? When the, when the light is strong enough, the revelation is strong enough, which is his job to create, it is not your job. He knows, he knows you inside and out. He knows exactly what buttons to push and levers to flip in order to get you to see truth. 
And once you see truth, then you effortlessly respond to it. Religion has come along and under threat, under threat to believe when we had no Holy Spirit convincing, but we just wanted to parrot a belief, you know, to miss hell or to force God to do something for us or to heal us because we say we believe he's the healer. You, you don't really believe he's the healer until the spirit of truth reveals to him that he's the healer. And then you believe and effortlessly respond to that. And it begins to take traction in your life. Let me encourage you about something. If you have, if you have things pushed down in you that you said you believe, but you really haven't gotten light and revelation on it yet, just let them go. Let him, let him begin to turn the light on. I think we've created a bad filter by saying that we believe when we don't believe. We've psyched ourselves into beliefs that we don't actually really encompass. So, so in light of what we've learned about confession and believing, I want to come back to Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. When we come back to Romans chapter 10, and those two verses that are, are used for, you know, bringing people to Jesus and bringing them to a place where they pray the prayer, we could read these two verses. Let me read them for you. It says, For if you will confess, homologia, say the same thing with your mouth, the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in your heart, respond to revelation down from inside, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now let me give you the Keithley translation of those two verses in light of just these two simple definitions. <clears throat> See, religion <clears throat> has taken those two verses and they've made a work out of it. They have made an effort out of it. They have, they have put the onus on you to have faith, to believe, to confess. All of that has got to, you, you got to jump through all the hoops, dot all the I's, cross all the T's in order to get those verses to work. Now let me give you my translation. You, here, here's Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you agree and say who Jesus is, based on what has been revealed to you, then wholeness, which is salvation, sozo, life, then wholeness will begin to work in your life. That's all he's saying. He's saying, if, if you will agree and say who Jesus is, based on the revelation and light you have, see, the revelation and light I have now on Jesus is a whole lot more than it was five years, ten years ago. Therefore, I have responded effortlessly to that light and revelation and there's now a life that flows in me that I didn't have at one time, right? For out of your heart, your spirit, man, you grasp the revelation. And your words come into agreement with what has already been revealed. That's what those two verses mean. Let me just read it for you. Let me read the Keith Lee translation without stopping. If you agree and say who Jesus is, Based on what has been revealed to you, then wholeness will begin to work in your life. For out of your heart, your spirit, man, you grasp the revelation. And your words come into agreement with what has been revealed. You see, believing comes naturally and effortlessly based on what you see by revelation. All right, I've got to hurry on. Let me just, let me just give, give you the last two here real quick because I, I do have to get over to Galatians. I want to finish this up because I want to get to chapter 4 next week. The word faith. Faith, man, this has, been, this has been such a word that we have created that has stressed us. 
If we don't get something, we're not healed, it doesn't work as though we thought it should, then we feel like we're on a guilt trip because our faith hasn't been strong enough. You know what faith is? Faith is simply a belief in God's ability. It's not a trust or faith in your ability. It's not faith in your faith. Faith is simply a trust. It's a reliance on Him. Faith takes the pressure off of you to fulfill the promise, to fulfill the word. It takes the pressure off of you and it places it on him. That's exactly what faith is. Faith is resting in the Father's ability to accomplish what he said he would accomplish. That's all faith is. It's it's a confidence in him. It's not a faith in your faith. I worked hard, man, at building my faith because, well, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So I would take the Bible that I, again, we've, we've, we've misdefined the word of God. The Bible never calls itself the word of God. There's only one infallible word of God that is inerrant. And at 18, he grew a beard. It's not, the, it's not the book. It's the man Jesus. The word was made flesh. Jesus is the inerrant word of God. But we took, we took well, I thought it was the Bible, word of God. So faith comes by hearing. I'd confess it. I'd play, play it on my cassette tapes or the CDs, go to sleep listening to the word of God because I wanted to build my faith. I made it into such a work because I wanted to have faith for healing. I wanted to have faith to lay hands and people would be healed. I, wa- I wanted to become a, a man of, of great faith. I made it into a tremendous work. You know, faith does come by hearing. But the hearing is the word that God speaks to you. It's not what you necessarily read and hear. Although he can speak to you through through your Bible. You know, I read my Bible a lot to you. Use a lot of scripture. But the word that creates faith is the word that he speaks to you. The word that he speaks to you carries within it faith to trust what he said. That's how it worked with Abraham. In Romans chapter 4, verse 19, here's, here's a good illustration of faith right here. Romans chapter 4. And this is, this is what faith should look like. And, and, and it lays it out well. You know, we read this so many times back in the day, but we never, because of our perception, our, our misdefining of faith, we looked at faith as being something that we built up in ourselves to do, to be able to accomplish what needed to be accomplished. Healing, uh, finances, whatever. We get it by faith, right? Here's how faith really looks. This is Abraham. Romans chapter 4 and verse 19. And not being weak in faith, watch. He did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old, dead or the dead of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, watch, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced, here it is, here's faith in action, being fully convinced that what God had promised, God was able to perform. That is faith. The pressure was off of Abraham. God spoke it to Abraham. And when God speaks the word, there is within the word he speaks to you the ability to trust him to accomplish it. Somehow, we have turned the tables to where when God speaks something to us, all of a sudden it becomes, 
our job to fulfill it and make it happen by our faith. I was, I've been so disappointed so many times in my life because of my, what I felt was my lack of faith. And I would take what God said, I'd pull it from him. I wouldn't trust him to do it. He told me, therefore, I needed to enact it. And that's how we've misdefined the word. Faith is nothing more than an absolute trust, trust in the ability of the one that promised it. Trust that he's able to also perform it. All right, this last word, let me hit it real quick. Receiving. Receiving is, is another word that we have made into an action that we must do. Receiving really is, an, and here's how Paul would see it. It's an acknowledgement of what you already possess. Receiving is nothing more than an acknowledgement of what you already possess. You can only receive what you've been given. You know, if I, if I go to uh, Domino's Pizza and I go in and I order a pizza, I pay for it. I can't receive the pizza until it's, until it's totally finished and given to me. I can only receive the pizza when it's done. You understand what I'm saying? It's an acknowledgement of what you already possess. I paid for it. It already is mine. And at the right time now, I can acknowledge what I already possess. You can only possess what you've already been given. Receiving doesn't make something happen. And that's the way we, we've misdefined receiving. We've turned it into a work. We've, we have said it, we don't have it till we receive it. No, you have it before you receive it. You already possess it. Receiving is, is simply saying, I understand that I have it. I receive it because, because I, I, it, it has already happened. You cannot receive anything by faith that grace has not already given to you. He's already given to you all things that pertain to life and God. They already belong to you. Therefore, you can receive them. Your receiving doesn't make him give you then at that point all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's already given you those things. So your receiving is an acknowledgement of what you already possess. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do more on these four words because you have to come out of a religious mindset and the perception that it created because that's the reality we lived in in religion. We see words in the wrong light. We need to get the right definition of words and we need to get the right perception so that we can live in the right way. All right, now real quick, let me go over to Galatians chapter three and let me finish up on, on these last verses from Galatians chapter three, uh, 15 through 29, all right? Galatians chapter three, verse 15 to 29. <clears throat> Paul says this, and thank you for sticking with me. I feel better now. I kind of released the burden that I had this week about these words because I know as we go through Paul's writings, these words, if, you, if you're still stuck in the stigma of religious definitions, you're not going to get the full impact of what Paul's talking about. So sometimes we just got to sit down and redefine and get a right, right perception so we can build the right reality. I want you to live in the right reality. So I got to get the right perception. And then that comes from pictures and words build pictures. We don't want to eat the fruit of wrong, wrong words, Solomon said. All right, now watch. It's important you understand this. Galatians chapter 3. Let me just real quick read this for you. Verse 15 to 18. Brethren, he said, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet is confirmed no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. It does not say in the seeds as of many, but to the one seed who is Christ. 
And this I say that the law which was 430 years after cannot annul the covenant which was concerned before in God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What's he, what's, what's he saying here? He's ending out this chapter by telling us um, that nothing changes the covenant that God made with Abraham. When God gives a word, when God gives a word, which he did to Abraham, the scripture says 430 years before the law, the law did not annul uh, the, the covenant that he made with Abraham. It was still coming to Christ. You see, the, the law was just kind of a parenthesis in history between the word to Abraham and the fulfillment of it in the seed, which is Christ. So he goes on then to say, okay, there, there is a purpose to this law. And he tells us in verses 19 through 25, and because of time's sake, I'm not going to read it all. But here's what he says the purpose of the law was. The purpose of the law was only to show us that we could not earn favor in God's sight by keeping a law. In fact, we failed miserably. So the, the, the entire purpose of the law was to point us to the need of a Savior, right? And that, that should be the purpose of anything we, we have as law today, although there's no law for you and me, where there's, you know, there's no law, there's no transgression. So we're not under law. Christ is the end of the law. Romans says to everyone that believes he is the end of the law. I believe he's the end of the law. He fo totally fulfilled it as all of us. Then in, in, the, in, the, in the last part of this chapter, verses 26 to 29, he says, look, this promise that was made to Abraham 430 years before the law, it was to be fulfilled through the seed, which is Christ. He says, okay, now you are all heirs. You're in Christ. Therefore, you are heirs of every promise that God made to Abraham. And I told you, talked to you about the promise to Abraham last week. The promise to Abraham, the covenant with Abraham, is that he would be blessed in everything he put his hand to. Every place where the uh, sole of his foot touched, that he could possess the ground. And everything that Abraham did, he would be blessed. He would bless all the nations of the world. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So he ends, he ends up this chapter by telling the Galatians that, look, the promise that God made to Abraham was not fulfilled through the law. The law had nothing to do with it. Therefore, you don't need to be part of the law. You have, you have been blessed with the blessing of Abraham through the seed, which is Christ. All right. Now, we're, that finishes chapter 3. In chapter 4, he makes a radical turn. And he begins to teach them on the progression of sonship. You're not ready for chapter 4 until you let Chapters 1, 2, and 3 really get a fixed position in your spirit. So let me, let me give you the takeaways. What I want you to, at this point, to take away from uh, Galatians chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. Chapter 1, <clears throat> he brings us, get this fixed in your spirit. He brings us the foundation of his message, which is Jesus plus nothing. And he's real big about it. Paul has no time for adding anything to the gospel revealed to him directly by Jesus. In fact... Paul call, calls it another gospel. Anything that's added to Jesus, he calls another gospel. Okay, I had just a little technical difficulty right then. Uh, my batteries died, so we had to put, put another set of batteries in, so I'm not sure where I cut off. So let me, let me just hit it with chapter 2. Here's what, I, here's what I want you to take away from chapter 2. Chapter 2 is that journey from 
uh, religion to revelation. So Paul begins to just strip off everything that has held us down and, and tried to control us and hold us back from, from moving forward. Uh, you know, everything that we thought we had to have in order to merit blessing from God. Anything we did to earn favor. You know, it, it, let me just bottom line. Here's what Paul would say. Anything that you think that you can do to earn favor, chuck it. Chuck it. Get rid of it. All right? Get rid of it. Then in chapter 3, Paul confronts, uh, Paul confronts them and asks them, look, you crazy Galatians, you started in grace. Don't try to perfect yourself by law. Are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now perfected by flesh? So these first three chapters, Paul does a great job of, of clearing the deck on what hinders and stops our personal growth. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, he's going to show them how to move on and grow based on grace, not religion, and religious activity. Next week, we're going to start with chapter 4, and he begins to lay out the journey of every son and daughter. So we're going to take those first seven verses of chapter 4 next week, and I'll actually spend two weeks on first seven verses. It's chucked full of revelation and light. So I would encourage you, read those first seven verses, meditate, get a good handle on it, and we'll pick it up next week. Hope you learned some things today at the Digital Cathedral, and we've helped you to get some good definition of words that maybe we had a little contorted view of that helps take the pressure off of us and put it on him where it belongs so that we can set back and rest in what he's accomplished for us. Hey. God bless you guys. Love all of you. Thank you for coming in and being part of the Digital Cathedral today. I'll see you Wednesday night. We'll talk a little bit more about these words, how they apply to us, and how we can take them even a step farther. Galatians 4, 1 to 7 next week. See you 10 a.m. God bless you, and may every word we spoke today be seeded deep within your spirit. Amen? Amen. See you next time. I want to take just a minute and thank all of you for being part of the Digital Cathedral and to just request your help in a couple of areas. There's two or three things that you can help us do to put this message around the world. First of all, if you have enjoyed the message, I'd like for you to go down on the YouTube and make a comment. Make a good affirmative comment because many people go down and read the comments before they watch the video to get an idea if it's favored or not favored. Second thing is you can share it on Facebook. Make sure that you hit us real strong on social media. Third thing is you can, you can do to help us is to become a monthly partner in support of what we're doing to keep this gospel of grace going around the world. This year in 2020, there's several things that I would like to get done, but it requires some finances. I'd like to expand the ministry. I'd like for us to become more effective in our marketing and in our production of what we're doing. So you can help us become a monthly partner, share on Facebook, and make good comments on YouTube. Thank you so much for being part of the Digital Cathedral. I bless all of you from around the world and hope that this message today, as well as every week, is a blessing to you. God bless you. We'll see you next week.